This is Psych Bates. Hey everybody, excited to have you all back for another episode of Psych Debates. This is your host, Dr. Monty Altahami. Excited to have you for this episode on psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Today, our guest, Dr. Harold Cutler, is going to be joining us for this exciting discussion. He's an associate consulting professor at Duke University an adjunct professor at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. As a psychiatrist, he's worn many hats throughout his career, um, from chairing special committees reporting to Congress, all the way to advising on Sesame Street Stock Listen Connect series for military families. Um, he ended his career um, in 2018. Prior to this, he joined the VA Central Office in D.C., as chief consultant for mental health services and acting assistant deputy undersecretary for patient care services until his retirement. We're really excited to have him on for today's episode. A recommendation of REITs for y'all is Carl Jung's Red Book and the Variety of Religious Experiences by Williams by William James. We're going to be starting a series of inner journey questions. And your inner journey question of the day is, what role does creativity play in your life? How do you cultivate it and express it? Without any further delay, this house calls upon the motion for debate. Hey everybody, welcome back to Psych Debates and welcome to this very exciting debate with Dr. Harold Cudler on psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Dr. Cudler, we, we've, we've had the chance to talk about this topic, at least briefly. And, and, and you know, nowadays it's the buzzword, and, and it seems like some people might think it's some sort of panacea, perhaps, um, and others, uh, a new form of, 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 of shamanism. I'm, I'm really excited to have this discussion with you, and welcome to Psych Debates. Well, thanks, Monty. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. So I just want to begin, as I always begin these episodes, with kind of defining some of the terms um, th- that surround this uh, topic, and starting with what is psychedelic-assisted uh, psychotherapy? Well, it's a good question, uh, and uh, to break it down into even the question into its component parts, Psychotherapy, I think most people have a good sense of what they are, but when we're talking about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, uh, that's a new uh, and important idea uh, that has really emerged in the last few years. There was a heyday of it back in the uh, 50s uh, and early 60s, Um, but let's talk about what psychedelics are. Uh, The dictionary would probably define them as powerful psychoactive substances capable of altering perception and mood and cognitive processes. Um, But the word psychedelic was coined very deliberately by a psychiatrist in the late 1950s. And he pulled it out of two Greek roots, uh, psyche for soul or maybe mind, and uh, and also the word to manifest. uh, uh, The the delic part comes out of to manifest. So these are mind manifesting drugs. In other words, drugs that 
somehow bring your mind uh, into new relationship with perception and frankly, you into a new relationship with your own mind. Wow, that's that's a, that is really interesting, and I, I you know the the breakdown of that uh, of the word psychedelic I've never known before, and it's really interesting that uh, the word manifesting, um, and I think you used new relationship with your mind. It it makes me think about a lot of things. Well, is this a good thing that you have this like new relationship with your mind, and that your mind manifesting on these substances? Yeah, well, I, I, let's start with saying, is it a real thing? What, what, you know, that's what the psychiatrist meant when he coined the term. Uh, but what really happens? Um, uh, it's a great question. But I can tell you, when I was in college in the early 70s, I had classmates who were convinced that a person couldn't kind of grow into maturity unless they had taken these drugs. And, and you'd hear people say, well, how else? would you ever really become fully conscious? Those are the days when Timothy Leary was alive and preaching that one needed to uh, drop out, turn on and tune in. And that's the mind manifesting theme. You know, if you don't use these drugs to tune in, you're always gonna be out of tune with your surroundings, other people, and ultimately with yourself. Now, I am not saying that I believed that then. <laughs> Uh, and I don't really believe that now, but that doesn't mean that I don't think there may be an important role for these uh, drugs as we move forward in trying to treat disorders, which we have uh, an inability to treat in many cases, in too many cases. Yeah, and it, and it seems that there is a uh, there is a sort of that component and then the therapist or the psychotherapy is 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 now fitting in this because it sounds like uh, at least from from your reference to your classmates and Tim Timothy Leary that uh, this was something that perhaps is used as, as part of um, non-medical use and I think what uh, or, or, or in a context outside of clinical practice and common norms of clinical practice and accepted science but what, what seems to be the recent shift is that this is now being incorporated into uh, or there are attempts or potential for it being incorporated as part of um, regular psychiatric practice in, in certain in certain areas. And that this the psychedelic assist the psychotherapy uh, from my understanding. And so it, it seems like there is a role where not only the experience is happening, but also that psychotherapy is happening and so how do, how do those two things fit together in, in that if it is if it is something that is perhaps uh, giving you in a relationship with your mind is the psychotherapist then uh, guiding you through this new relationship or or, or is it just a monitoring role uh, where they're just kind of observing and making sure that you know if things do go wrong they step in well, it, it's a good question. You know, in the 60s, the idea was that this is something you might take on by yourself. I think more commonly, most people took it on with friends or sometimes with someone they considered to be a guide who could make sure that if they began a trip, as people would call it, uh, it would be a good trip and not a bad trip. And uh, in other words, that it can be very disorienting to take these medicines. And if you're in a bad state of mind when you start, or if you're alone and become frightened, it could be a terrifying trip. Uh, on the other hand, people will tell you that 
it could be one of the peak experiences of their lives to suddenly have this sense of being connected with the entire universe and to see significance in yourself and significance in the things and people around you that you had never seen before. And you might come out of that feeling like, I had a glimpse of something that was powerful, that made me feel empowered, and that I think this vision will continue to sustain me maybe the rest of my life. That's what people were hoping for. That's what they were seeking. What's going on now in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is very much a medicalized procedure. And it actually begins uh, not with taking a drug, but with a number of sessions that are specifically designed to create what's called the set and the setting. In other words, one creates positive expectation by giving people a full grounding of what the purpose of this treatment is, what this drug is like, what they might expect once they start taking it, all of which to make them not afraid, not likely to panic and go into that bad trip, and also to set a very high expectation that this is going to be a very good thing. And that setting can determine what will actually happen once that drug is in your system. And the set creates a, a, um, your surroundings. Uh, and in fact, in MDMA treatment created by a group called MAPS, they've actually created a model, which you can see if you Google it on the internet, where you, after these introductory sessions, the uh, being made to feel comfortable, what's going to happen, how you might feel, uh, the safety issues, what's going to be done to make sure that you feel safe and well, uh, you will actually take that medication in a comfortable bed, probably with music being piped into your ears through headphones, very peaceful music, very likely your eyes will be covered so that you're completely open to uh, uh, an internal experience, but there will be to either side of you, uh, two therapists who will be there with you, guiding you through it, facilitating uh, uh, the, um, the experience that you're having and making sure it's going well. The way this usually unravels is that you begin to feel the drug after a, a, a set period of time, and then you begin to have that experience. And then really as you're kind of coming back, uh, you know, transitioning back to more your normal frame of mind, the facilitators, the therapist either side, will ask you questions about how you're doing and what your experience was. And uh, if you look at some of these uh, videos that are available on the internet, uh, the Mithoffers are the couple uh, uh, who uh, demonstrate this, uh, you'll see them asking good questions about what did you see? What did you feel? What was it like? Uh, what do you think about that now? How do you connect to this? And I think you're going to have to be impressed with what the subject says about the sense of safety, uh, even thinking about things that never felt safe to them before. These are in PTSD treatments, um, about greater insight, about greater comfort with themselves, about sensing a new ability to be themselves again after their traumatic experience really severely limited that in the past. That's when things go very well. And frankly, I think when you can achieve something like that, one should, so long as you're really following the research evidence that this thing truly is helpful for people. And also so long as you can ensure that it is as safe as you can make a medical procedure. Yeah, and it, it, it sounds like 
this this way of, of kind of uh, having a setting, um, kind of prelimin with positive expectations, having staff on hand, and asking these open-ended questions seems to be a model that's being followed right now. And as you said, you, there must be really interesting stories that uh, patients end up giving or answers to these questions. I wonder if there is a common theme in these experiences and, and what that means. I, I've, no, I've, I've, I've gotten a chance to, to read on a topic briefly, uh, briefly and um, had the, the, the kind of sense that there are uh, similar experiences, albeit um, they may have been experienced differently, but that those people come out of the experience, at least with a sense of like oneness uh, it, 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 of sorts. And also there is a sense of less death anxiety or at least more peace, peace with death. Uh, has, has there been those common themes and what, what, what are your thoughts around those common themes? What do they mean and why are they coming up? Well, I think you're right in, in saying that maybe the most common element, we're talking about many different substances, which are chemically different, go to different receptor sites, metabolized differently by different people. Uh, but one of the common things you hear from most people, whether it's mescaline, MDMA, uh, LSD, which we hear, we're hearing less about, uh, psilocybin, um, is this sense of connectedness, a profound sense that the, the whole world is connected, uh, the components of the world connected up with one another, and that you are a part of all of that. Uh, a word that I think is an appropriate word is imminence, the sense that everything has meaning, everything uh, is welcoming, everything is um, open to you. And it creates a perspective on yourself and your, your place in the universe um, that gives you, can give you, I think a sense of confidence and belonging uh, that otherwise many people just don't experience in their lives. And that is profound. Uh, you know, William James wrote a valuable book at the beginning of the 20th century, The Varieties of Religious Experience, where he talks about mystical um, experiences of many kinds, mostly he concentrates on religious um, uh, revelatory events, con religious conversion, which can happen in a very short space of time. Um, and he says about them that, look, we really can't, as doctors, as philosophers, we really can't say, was this a genuine experience of God? And as doctors, we may even say, this person has temporal lobe epilepsy uh, or took some substance, and that's what got this all going. But we can't argue with an insight that might be gained from that experience, which may in fact be profound and have a validity of its own, and which in a very short space of time could change a person's life often for the better. Can't argue that that happens, it does happen. The question now is, as, as psychiatrists, do we want to wield that power? Can we wield it safely? And do we know from solid research that this will help our patients. And I think that's the, the, the million dollar question, isn't it? That we're still waiting to 
see kind of the long-term um, effects associated with some of these psychedelics um, and as you said how they fit in um, the practice of psychiatry and, and medicine uh, more generally um, and I think it's really interesting that there is that sense of connectedness that comes with uh, the use of psychedelics. Um, and it makes me wonder if promoting just that would serve the same purpose. But it's my impression that there is something. Um, oh, uh, well, let me ask, is, do you believe or think or, you know, have you have you had the chance to read upon or maybe hear if the experiences that people are having are the thing that's causing the transition later on? Um, or is it that there's some sort of um, biological uh, explanation for why this is happening? And I'm sure that there are there are theories. And I and, and I mentioned this um, in, in the setting of, of, you know, the recent JAMA paper that came out in 2020 in November. Uh, sorry, in the New England Journal of Medicine um, uh, that, that looked at using psilocybin and found pretty uh, positive effects in it reducing major depressive disorder uh, and those with treatment-resistant uh, major depressive disorder, improving quality of life outcomes, but yet not knowing the reason they work um, or, or how the experience or whether the experience itself is causing that change. Or uh, there are some uh, neurological changes, biological neurological changes that are occurring that causing that change. Well, it's a great question. And, you know, I find that a lot of psychiatrists, especially younger psychiatrists who are getting into the field at a time where there's this promise of this potentially breakthrough uh, therapy and the FDA literally approved uh, research into MDMA and psilocybin as what is officially called breakthrough therapy. So, you know, I could see where they get very excited. But as they approach this possibility, they often want to talk about it in terms of uh, neurotrophic uh, growth factors and, uh, and new connections being made. Uh, I personally, uh, after uh, being in this field since, the, you know, the, the 1970s, I personally don't have a lot of faith that simply increasing the number of connections in some random way that might happen through these drugs, and, and these drugs probably do cause that. Ketamine is known uh, to cause increased branching uh, of nerve endings and, and new connections. But I don't think new connections by themselves can do the job. In fact, you know, people used to think, uh, isn't it a pity that as you get older, you have fewer and fewer connections and fewer neurons in your brain. Uh, and then we discovered that actually the pruning of those connections so that they're effective and efficient and get you through life is a, a terribly important uh, process that it's not, you know, just having connections isn't by the, the answer. I, I think you are also getting at something really important that, you know, what does the therapy part of this do? And, and I think that if there is a new, um, in fact, a new kind of plasticity in the brain because of these drugs, then the therapy may help to shape what those connections are and to move in the right direction. Now, this is still science fiction. No one has ever demonstrated that this is how these drugs work. Uh, and there are probably a lot of other ways to think about how they work. I'd like to think that what happens uh, when things go well in a psychedelic-assisted therapy is that there's a deepening of the patient's trust in themselves 
a deepening of their sense of, you know, I matter in this world. I wasn't sure that I did. I've been depressed. I, I've been traumatized. Uh, but, uh, but, but this experience has convinced me that there's something important going on and that I'm something important and I matter. There's also the therapeutic relationship. Um, Jerome Frank, who was a, a military psychiatrist during World War II, uh, spent the rest of his life trying to understand what does get people better. He didn't want to jump on the bandwagon of psychoanalysis, which many psychiatrists did after World War II, because in fact, psychoanalytic principles were really powerful in helping people with combat fatigue, people who couldn't walk, who couldn't remember their own name, who stuttered or were, were um, uh, lost sensation. Uh, a single session of hypnosis, a single session with um, sodium amytal, a short-acting barbiturate given an infusion, plus a therapist guiding people through that experience and helping them recover themselves. You could say through suggestion, and I think it is through suggestion, uh, could change uh, that person's outlook and get those symptoms um, uh, to improve often within minutes. In fact, there is an army training film that was declared top secret after, um, almost immediately after it was made. It wasn't seen for 50 years, but you can now Google it and uh, watch it on your computer or telephone called Let There Be Light. And you can watch hypnosis. Be careful not to be hypnotized. Don't follow the hypnotist too closely. You'll see real patients, real doctors uh, doing sodium amytal interviews, doing hypnosis, and people who had been severely affected by their combat experience become able to overcome those symptoms in a single session. This is what we're seeing now with these medicines. But what part of that is the connection to the doctor? And to what extent does the altered state in the presence of a trusted therapist uh, it significantly enhance the power of the therapeutic alliance? Maybe that's a big part of what's going on. I, I wouldn't want to reduce this to what's happening at nerve endings. I think there's much more in the mind and the brain uh, that has to do with um, relationships, including your relationship with yourself, that is at, at play in these treatments. Yeah, and it, and it and I think it, the question that came to my mind is, you know, psychotherapy or you know, talk therapy more broadly has many uh, branches. Um, one one of one of the things that I noticed is, as you mentioned, some of these um, the the uh, the World War post World War II video uh, about the veterans that had come back to the war with 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 which was called shell shock, I guess at that time, um, early forms of PTSD. Um, that there is a sort of um, chance for that relationship to have a deep impact, but also in some forms of psychotherapy versus others or talk therapy versus others, one is taking a more explorative approach, if I was going to phrase it that way, and one is more directive uh, and guiding and coaching with specific instruction. Um, and I wonder what you think would be the best approach in this setting. Uh, obviously, being being from one school yourself or, or leading on one school yourself, knowing that, but also 
trying to think myself, trying to think about how the different types of therapies might fit with psychedelics. Like for instance, gets CBT uh, or ACT or DBT fit, or is it more supportive? Or is this like psychoanalysis on the couch? What, what do we, what type of psychotherapy is happening? Well, I, I think you're asking a great question because um, the choice of therapy really needs to fit the patient and it needs to fit the patient in the here and now where they are in the course of, of their problems, uh, what they're ready to do, what they're ready to talk about. Uh, you know, I'm trained in psychoanalysis, and you may remember that uh, when uh, Joseph Breyer and Sigmund Freud developed the idea of psychoanalysis, it first begins with altered states. Uh, you, and, and it kind of begins by accident. Breyer is treating a young woman who is having all sorts of hallucinations, uh, bizarre symptoms, uh, and she's really becoming uh, incapable of, of, of you know, living outside of a hospital. And uh, he doesn't really know what to do, but he notices that when she goes into trances, which she does spontaneously in his presence, that she sometimes mutters about things. And once in a while, he picks up something that he thinks might be meaningful and, and important in her symptoms. And so he decides, he's seen demonstrations of hypnosis, he decides he'll create the altered state. And to both his surprise and his patient's surprise, in under hypnosis, she can remember everything that has to do with her symptoms. And when she remembers that, shares it with Dr. Breuer, and especially, in fact, only when she not only remembers what happens as a memory, but she feels the emotions connected to that memory, when she wakes up from hypnosis, she's cured. That symptom is gone. Uh, Freud tried to follow that original model of psychoanalysis, and he couldn't follow it very far. He, he, he tells uh, his listeners when he gives these five lectures on psychoanalysis uh, back in uh, 1909, he, he, you know, he's explaining what was happening. He says, look, I didn't really understand this hypnotic trance. How could I just hold up a couple of fingers and say, go to sleep? And the patient would enter this trance. I didn't expect that she would. I didn't control it. How could I be the one who's putting her in a chance? Apparently something else going on, I, I would say, in between the lines that the patient created the trance. Uh, and woe to the hypnotist who believes that they created it. No, the patient created this. Um, but Freud goes on to say, I soon came to dis dislike hypnosis for it was a temperamental and one might almost say a mystical ally. And Freud decided that whenever possible, one would not go to such extreme lengths to open up a patient. Uh, Breuer and Freud talk about hypnosis as a forceps that takes you under the psychic skin and you can pluck out the, the, the trauma, which is acting like a foreign uh, object, uh, like a splinter that's festering under the skin. Uh, but Freud wanted people to be, just talk about their lives, not to have to do it under hypnosis, not to have the therapist exert this powerful influence. He really believed that if people were truly going to recover themselves, they couldn't be under the, the clinician's spell under the clinician's power. Therapy couldn't be about the clinician. It had to be about the patient and whenever possible by the patient for the patient. This is how psychoanalysis has evolved. That being said, 
there are still going to be times when a patient needs another kind of experience to overcome a challenge that otherwise is just pushing them back and back. And you mentioned earlier about near-death experiences. I, I can't imagine something much worse than knowing you have a terminal cancer. And there have has been at least one study, not a huge study, but a very um, a study that gives us some optimism that people suffering from depression facing uh, a terminal illness who then take psilocybin feel relieved of at least their depression because they've got a very different perspective on their life and what it means. And because they feel connected in the way they don't feel even death can, um, can blunt that sense of connectedness and significance. They're not afraid at least of just disappearing and uh, becoming nothing. They, they have a profound sense that they can't be nothing because everything's connected. I'm not going to speak to whether that's true or not true, if people, though, in that state can get relief, I'm certainly all for that. Right, and there's, there's, there, and, and there's so much to explore in, a, in those experiences, uh, that being a, a kind of a repeated pattern that people have a new relationship with death um, and the, the, the connectedness uh, component as well. Um, I have a few questions here, but I want to start with asking what are the things that this is going to work for or what are the things that this is being researched and thought for? Um, I know that it seems, it seems to be that, you know, we use the term psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, uh, but we've yet to, I guess, um, we started looking at depression. Uh, I wonder what conditions this could be useful. Is this ever going to be applicable to... Uh, a patient with schizophrenia, for instance, uh, or is this mostly for, you know, folks that are what we call the moderate to mild um, uh, range of disorders, whether it's mood disorders, whether it's depression or anxiety? Wh where do we see this going and how, how do we how do we see it play fold in, in, in our practice in psychiatry? Well, I, I first came into the conversation with people who were advocating for psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy uh, because they, they felt it would be a great treatment for PTSD. And there is research going on in that area. Uh, depression is another area, depression in general, and as we just said, depression related to facing a terminal illness. These are two other areas. Uh, actually, if you go to the MAPS group, the MDMA, Assisted Psychotherapy Society, they'll specifically say that they think that schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, I think they also mentioned dissociative disorder. I certainly would. These are probably strong contraindications to using uh, these substances. These are people uh, whose uh, uh, grip on themselves, grip on reality, is can be very tenuous, and it doesn't help then to uh, you know to, to to make that grip even looser with a drug like this. So. Um, but, but this leads to one of my main concerns about psychedelic-assisted therapy, and it's based on what we've seen with ketamine. Ketamine has been demonstrated in large studies, in good studies, in replicated studies by people who don't have any apparent alliance to the idea that it's going to work. Oh, this is sure going to work. Uh, but ketamine, once it was approved by the FDA for prescription use, is now being used for all sorts of conditions for which there is no body of research that is good. 
It's being used in all sorts of doses by all sorts of people in all sorts of ways, supervised, unsupervised, infusions, uh, you know, in inhalation. Uh, it, it's um, once you open up Pandora's box, you can't control who will be getting psilocybin for what in what doses. And while I think it's probably true what our research is telling us, that in the doses that, uh, that, that are be done in the research that the FDA is going to be looking at, these are safe levels, safe doses, the treatment is safe. I fully believe that, but there's no guarantee once this is available. And also once people say, well, would you like to buy some psilocybin? You seem depressed, this is good for depression. Here's an article from Journal of Medicine. You, you can do this on your own, I'm telling you it's great. Uh, once that starts happening, we don't know what people are taking, how much they'll take, or how often they'll take it, and we have no idea what that's going to do to people. Right, and, and that that certainly that that can, uh, as you said, permeate places where we don't see. You know, at least we don't we're not present as medical practitioners, uh, whether that's in like a recreational uh, use, um, and see, and and I imagine as as this becomes a. Uh, perhaps more accepted or more more widely used at least form of psychotherapy and in psychedelics in general that those laws will change and people will start perhaps using it recreationally which more so than they they have been already uh, so and that, that takes me to the idea that we mentioned earlier you know and you, you can't be in a bad state of mind when you go and do these things right say uh, and that that that's perplexing for me as a psychiatrist because most of the time I'm seeing somebody or you know and unfortunately the the way it works is that people don't feel good so they come to us, um, and uh, or brought to us and so I'm just wondering how this fits in that if if somebody's already feeling depressed or anxious or uh, they're already having a uh, a flare whatever condition they may have or or worsening of their situation um how, how how this could could be helpful um and uh, how one could prevent a bad trip if we know uh what what a bad trip is and why it happens um because because those are those are um those are some things to consider i imagine for me because I, the same way that if you're going to i'm just thinking about what we said earlier the same way you may increase plasticity and you may have like this period of time uh when you are uh, very open to new ideas, perhaps, or, or feeling uh, very interconnected, and 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 perhaps like uh, those those boundaries loosen up a little bit, that um, you you may start to integrate that bad experience, and that bad experience may then become up become something that it wasn't, almost as if it's locked in, um, if I was going to use that word um, to describe it. Um, and, and people may develop all sorts of conditions, I imagine. And now all this is speculation. I do know that in the, in the New England Journal of Medicine study uh, from November of, of 2022, uh, 2022, that there was uh, a, few, a, a few folks that had an increase in um, self-injurious behavior uh, surrounding um, the use of the psychedelics. Um, and so I'm just very curious about that, um, the, the bad trip and what it would be like and what it means for the long term is it equally as bad as having a good experience that in that if you, somebody has a bad trip they will develop a ptsd syndrome or a depressive syndrome 
or worsening anxiety syndrome? Well, you know, it's interesting. In the long history of uh, philosophy uh, and romanticism surrounding this, and, and, you know, in sort of the modern era, that begins in the early 1700s with a, a fellow named Swedenborg, a scientist, an inventor, uh, a, a man of uh, the Enlightenment, uh, who um, has his own religious revelation and begins to preach the importance of a mystical experience. And he holds that actually people need to come face to face with a devastating psychological moment. Uh, which can be brought on by contemplation uh, or through religious uh, uh, experience, and that it kind of purges away the things that are holding them back. Uh, Aldous Huxley, writing in the 1950s, his famous book, The Doors of Perception, which is where Jim Morrison and his band got the name The Doors for their group, um, he, he writes uh, that, okay, sometimes you may inevitably end up with a bad trip, but then he kind of quips that some people might be improved by a few hours in hell. Uh, you know, and, and God knows that might be true, but I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And I certainly wouldn't want to chance it with someone who's put their trust in me as a mental health clinician uh, to get them through and not to hurt them. Uh, and, um, and I think that is a challenge we're going to take on. Uh, as we administer these drugs, uh, once I, I, I figure they will be approved, and once they are, uh, again, I hope we're going to learn from the ketamine experience and have the policy in place, um, and standards in place. Uh, as a, as a young doctor, you know, starting out, I remember when doctors, including in the VA, but in all hospitals, were told, "Why are you letting your patient have pain? Why aren't you giving them opiates?" What kind of doctor are you? How could you allow your patient to suffer? And where nursing associations and the nurses in the hospital would say, we demand that you fill out these pain charts. And if they're, you know, from a smiley face to, a to an unsmiley face, and we demand that you give opiates to get them into the right zone, that experiment destroyed a lot of lives. And while people, you know, are eager to... Uh, uh, you know, go after the drug companies, which profited and, and, and which helped create those policies. And the entire medical community participated fully in that. We could make the same mistake here if we decide to wave our magic wand with this powerful new tool, which seems to be capable of, of freeing people from terrible problems, uh, but we just wave away and don't realize until after we've done great damage to a great many people that doing magic is not part of doing medicine. Right. And and also, I'm very just also very curious. I mean, these drugs have been psychedelics are not new. They've been they've been around since time in memoriam. Um, and if they are, you know, it seems to me that sometimes when there is a breakthrough treatment and there is the buzzword flying around and it is present in the news and social media and people are interested not only from a mental health and medicine perspective but also from um, other industries um, that people do gravitate towards something uh, like this pretty quickly um, and 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 try to try to either capitalize on this early um early adoption um and then you know kind of if there is later consequences kind of uh, early departure from um but what makes me think about 
that um, is if psychedelics are uh, truly this panacea um, and, and treatment, why hasn't it been discovered before? Why hasn't it been used before? Why aren't the people um, on, and perhaps maybe there is something that, you know, we and it, it has been blocked out. Why aren't the people that have been doing psychedelics been writing that, wow, like uh, back in the day, you know, when somebody got sick, we gave them this and they had a trip and they got better. Um, why is it coming out now? Um, I imagine in the 70s, these, these uh, drugs were used even more rampantly. Um, and e and I imagine even before, in, in, in different societies, in different cultures, they were used in different ways. Um, why is this happening now that this is like being medicalized? Well, you know, it really did happen in the 40s and uh, late 40s, early 50s, uh, into the 60s. Um, there are many ways that people tell these stories. Uh, there were literally hundreds, if not thousands of articles, scientific articles written about them. Uh, and there was a lot of interest in them. Um, but then there was uh, there were also some frightening stories about people jumping out of windows. How often that happened, I don't know, but my understanding is it happened at least once. And if people uh, running out in the traffic or people who uh, just didn't come back from some of these uh, bad trips. Uh, and and it got pulled into politics. It got pulled into the idea of the war on drugs. It got, drugs became lumped in with the opiates, uh, with cocaine. You know, there was a time when Coca-Cola literally had cocaine in it. Right, right, right. It had cocaine. Yeah. It had time. <laughs> but, you know, that's where they got it. 7-Up had lithium in it when it first came out. Oh. And it was meant to calm your nerves. You know, good luck with that. You know, yeah. <laughs> most mm. people find with a little bit of lithium. And some people think when lithium is in the groundwater, there's less bipolar illness. And there have been some studies that seem to demonstrate that. But but <laughs> I'm not sure how much lithium I want to drink on a, on a given day. Um, you know, the VA for many years not only built sweat lodges on their grounds for Native Americans and other veterans who would find that altered state of being in a sweat lodge uh, kind of opening them up in new ways, but they actually also would hire uh, Native American healers and would even pay for peyote at many VA sites so that, so that veterans were getting a full cultural experience. Um, so, you know, it's not like this hasn't been done. Uh, and it, not like it hasn't been done in official places. But what we're talking about now is a sort of, if you will, democratization of these drugs, uh, de, uh, making them legal, making it possible uh, to uh, acquire them in any of a number of ways, uh, creating a black market. You know, what's, what's different about these drugs is they're, the big drug companies, at least so far, have no profit motive in these drugs. These drugs are old substances, and they really can't be uh, uh, patented and sold that way. You know, I'm sure already people are busy working at, you know, right. Group here, <laughs> and then, boy, I got this, you know. Make this it last, make it last five minutes. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, that's, that's capitalism, and it'll go its way. Uh, but do hope we're going to learn from uh, mistakes made in the past. I do hope we're going to learn from some of the uh, unfortunate things that happened with ketamine and the way that it spread and its use has spread. Uh, I'll say one other thing that concerns me a great deal. Uh, 
again, I started training uh, in, in the in the seventies, my first exposure to psychiatry in the late seventies. And there, in those days, the bulk of psychiatry, if you pull, uh, say, uh, the archives of general psychiatry, the American Journal of Psychiatry off the shelf in the 1970s, the bulk of the articles are not biological. They are psychological, and, and many of them were the psychoanalytic end. And so that's the world I came into, and it's a world that I was very comfortable in and remain comfortable in. I, I find it a very helpful perspective in working with my patients uh, and have uh, in every setting I've ever worked in. Um, but people who are being trained lately are being brought up in a world we're 30 years into the decade of the brain that started in 1990. They're being by people who's, who are already third generation with the idea that neuroscience is the key to unlocking um, mysteries that psychoanalysis couldn't get at, that psychoanalysis sort of babbled about, but really didn't have uh, a good foothold, couldn't do what needed to be done. And by the way, I think neuroscience has been incredibly helpful, and I do my best to, uh, to, to be a good psychiatrist who can practice with the tools that work best uh, from both fields and, and other fields too. Uh, but, but you know, I recently attended a, a, a presentation given by a group of uh, fellows in psychiatry. This is a really distinguished group of psychiatrists nearing the end of their training. And they decided that they would take on the subject of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. But when they um, finished their six months of preparation to give this talk to uh, a psychiatric group, um, they presented psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. That was the title of their talk is if they were reading pages of the PDR. Here is a substance, here it's chemical structure, here are its receptors, here's its uh, proposed mechanism of action. These are the doses in which one might take it. This is the length of, uh, of the response. Next drug. With no attention to the psychotherapy-assisted part of it, which as you and I, I think, are, are both getting at, may in fact be more powerful. The drug may manifest a state in which one can get at things psychologically that otherwise might not be available or may not be available for a very long time. And they may create a much faster response to a psychotherapeutic intervention, much of which is the patient doing the work and the therapist facilitating that work. Uh, but, um, but to think, to reduce this to a biological effect, is I think making a terrible mistake because you're not understanding the role of the mental health professional uh, that's really needed to keep the set, the setting and the outcome good. I'll mention one other thing that's been lost. As we've gotten away from psychodynamic training for residents, and I use psychoanalytic and psychodynamic interchangeably, um, I think a lot of residents sitting down with a person who is profoundly depressed, sitting down with a person who's endured terrible trauma may not be thinking about the effect it has for them to be in the room with that extreme level of suffering. Now, I'm not talking about the person who's kind of down and out. You know, I'm talking about a person who is so depressed, what we used to call melancholic depression, that they can only see the darkness. They, they, they can't imagine any other way. Um, the person who is telling you about a traumatic event that you would rather not know could possibly have happened and who is suffering, and you would 
like to be able to help them, but you haven't the vaguest idea how. And frankly, in the transference and countertransference, they are bringing that suffering into the room. And you are, through what's been called vicarious traumatization, you are now bathing in it with them. It, it's alive in the room. And um, I, I, I think that a lot of psychotherapists, because they haven't been trained to think about transference and countertransference and be able to step back from their own responses and take their own pulse in real time, because why would you do that in a neuroscientific world? Um, uh, because this is about neurons and their endings in the patient's brain, not mine. Uh, what have I got to do with this? I'm just a doctor. Uh, yeah, I think Dr. Cutler, and I, 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 I want to add to this to, to, to what you're saying by saying that I think in, in the medical model in general, there is a, a lot of difficulty dealing with subjective experience um, and trying to perhaps make it uh, objective in a way. Uh, a, a patient's own lived and their own personal um, uh, experience may escape uh, a perception of the doctor, but we might, what might not escape the perception of a doctor, this generic doctor, is uh, their behaviors uh, and what they're reporting. Um, and those are the same things that are much easier to put in a paper and publish. Uh, and that's why... Uh, from 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 I guess I'm from this generation of of of, of um, whether it's oscillating back towards that direction of like trying to understand a subjective experience better in combination with all the other changes that we're learning all the new knowledge that we had or whether it's a continuation of the last 30 years um, there is a feeling that the subjective experience may not be valid um, and, and 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 that maybe perhaps doctors don't have rather than not being valid that doctors don't have a role uh, in, in commenting uh, or in assessing or in uh, evaluating that experience um, because there, there, there's, there is no, other than the language a patient may use or somebody may use, there is no real way to measure a mind. Um, and and that, that makes it, that makes it not not fit in the um, medical model that psychiatry is is has been trying to embrace and also um, uh, continue to manifest in its growth. Um, and I think that's that that is that is part of the reason. And I think what's really unique about this the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy in in some ways it it meets it meets all those things in the middle as. As much as it is a an experience, it is also a substance that is a, that is a, 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 a chemical that goes into the brain. You know, I'll use the example of of, of uh, psilocybin, uh, which is colloquially named um, the mushrooms. Um, that psilocybin then goes to the brain, and whether it's like broken down to psilocin or and it gets to the brain, it does something. That that thing is doing something that triggers a chain of thoughts perhaps or a, a a chain of change in perception um and perhaps it is in that change uh, in perception that one now renegotiates um their their schemas or their beliefs and that's maybe where that realm of like biological chemical neurological meets with the subjective experienced uh realm 
and making this this type of therapy really interesting and also very i think very difficult to fit in one place because i've as 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 much as um as much as a psychiatrist i could see that psychiatrists would do this but i also i can see why i don't see why a psychologist can't do this as well or other mental health professionals in a medical setting where you know you have a nurse or you have somebody who can who can monitor um, or or other forms of, of, of uh, practitioners that can monitor patients and it may not need per se a psychiatrist uh, to, to help with this and, and and so and the same the same could be said for any form of psychotherapy really but I think that's what makes this kind of really interesting to me at least um, in that it's like right there at the crux of the mystical and the neuroscientific and somehow it's tapping to something that we are trying to tap into in all other things, which is change. Change, um, and, and particularly what's being documented or commented on is cognitive flexibility, that this, this experience increases cognitive flexibility or uh, psychological flexibility. And in that, in that process, people... Um, in, in somehow get an access to this circuit board of their of their brain and and they just you know kind of toggle with it to, to have a new act to have a new experience i said all this to ask the question which is as part of this um subjective experience that people are having and then followed by psychotherapy that maybe we're we're giving to to the patients um is it is it then that they are and, and we may have mentioned this before is it is it then that they take this experience and integrate it into their life by themselves um uh or is it and i guess we already asked this before is it then now this biological effect that's happening that's creating this um that 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 leads to this and i guess your 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 thoughts about it are that yes and also for both but also that what you might be more interested in is that subjective component um and that that shouldn't be underplayed and that is as important um and perhaps is the realm of change that we can play a role in as clinicians um, as opposed to finding out the targets uh for where these psychedelics may uh, may play their role. Well, you know, I, th I think you captured that uh, well, Monty. You and I went to uh, college and learned a lot of science, and we learned how one approaches things scientifically. And we went to medical school and learned a lot more science and learned a lot more about research and how how empiricism works. And um, and as you say it's very much about objectivity and how to achieve objectivity. Uh, we talked earlier about let's get the research base. Well, that has to be objective research. And there is a whole methodology of how one tries to achieve objectivity. Uh, and, and, and again, you can never be too sure that it was truly objective. Uh, sometimes you, you, you think it was, and it wasn't exactly. Um, what William James gets to in the Varieties Religious Experience uh, at the very end of the book is a statement that I, I think you'll find helpful, that um, he says, look, objectivity is important if we're going to think through a problem and understand it. But if we 
try to contain our focus to what can be observed and validated objectively, we are deliberately blinding ourselves to the subjective aspects of reality. And when it comes to the human condition, subjectivity is what gives reality its salience, its meaning, its depth. And, and I think one thing that psychedelics do is they at least create a sense of salience, a sense of profundity, a sense of life being, frankly, more than you made of it before and you yourself being more than you made of yourself than before, when things go well, uh, that if we're trying to improve the human condition, we have to allow for the subjective. We have to do our best to create an objective, rigorous, disciplined study of subjectivity and then apply that clinically as a therapy. And perhaps that's what psychedelic assisted therapy will achieve I just want to step back and wait until more evidence is in uh, before making that judgment. Gotcha. No, that, that that makes perfect sense. And you know, there the the tendency is to to see a little evidence and say, well, you know, if there's little, there must be a lot. And I guess that's one of our cognitive uh, biases. You know, I, maybe this is a little bit of a Jung type of question for the audience. Just uh, you, Carl Jung is one of the early psychoanalysts who was a colleague of Freud uh, and had, you know, kind of broke away from his school of thought to his own. He's uh, uh, he's known uh, in in more popular circles, kind of person who came up with architects and and the collective unconscious. I, I, I did want to ask here specifically about um that in a sense of is there new information there you know and i think that's that is a kind of a you question because he thought that there is perhaps new information in his unconscious um that 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 realm is as equally valid in being studied perhaps objectively um and, and that's that some new information can be gained as much as new information can be gained from uh, me measuring something out here in the world, um, like measuring the length of trees and deciding what the average is, that perhaps an, an, an inquiry inside of the mind has certain objective uh, components. Um, and, you know, this is more, more of a, I don't want to say philosophical, but more of an explorative question around this topic of the unconscious and going inside because it seems like that's what's happening here in a way that uh, patients are going to going through an experience um but presuming uh we are still following an empirical model all these experiences may have been just a recreation of their experiences in their lives in different symbols or formats uh, based on the information they collected in a life with their sense perception, their seeing, their hearing, their smelling, their touching, um, and that the psychedelics can take those experiences and blend them together to present a new image of sorts. Is it that, or is there something, uh, I guess, not out there, but in there? <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, if you look at the Red Book, which was came into publication not that long ago, uh, where Carl Jung kind of shares... Uh, almost phantasmagorical uh, experiences, uh, which he considered to be spiritual experiences that in turn shone light 
on human nature, the human condition, and how to work with uh, people who were having problems in their lives. Uh, you can kind of see what you're describing, and, and often with illustrations by Carl Jung. Uh, and where Freud and Jung broke, they, they, they broke on a, a bunch of things. When they first met, uh, it was because Carl Jung was actually using a stopwatch, uh, a good Swiss uh, technique, uh, to time how long it took people to associate the different words in order to empirically demonstrate Freud's idea that if it was a conflicted word, if it was a word that the individual connected to something about which they had anxiety, it would take them longer to respond. And Jung did a, a brilliant job of, uh, of, of demonstrating that uh, with a stopwatch uh, and multiple trials with multiple people. Uh, but by the time their relationship really broke, Carl Jung was interested more in a sort of spiritual journey. Um, and Freud had to step back and say, look, as much as I might empathize with where you're trying to go and what you're trying to learn, and I might agree to the truth of what can be learned, Freud himself was constantly quoting uh, poets, uh, theater, uh, you know, he, he, metaphors of all sorts. But Freud really wanted to hold psychoanalysis as a science, something that could be studied, that it was possible to have the disciplined study of subjectivity without sort of diving into it yourself. I got to say that I think one thing that concerns me about the psychedelic experience is that the experience, the phenomenon, is being put on a pedestal by both patient and doctor. And to the extent it's put on a pedestal by the doctor, number one, that may be a big fall for everyone off that pedestal if things don't turn out the way one hopes they're going to turn out. And that's the history many times to many brilliant doctors who have done good in the world, but nonetheless end up taking a fall. I'm thinking of Mesmer Charcot. There was a fellow named Elliotson in England uh, things did not go well. Look at Timothy Leary. Things did not go well. Um, but the other part I, I really want to focus, and it's hard, and I'll try to frame this just in a few words. When we're dealing with people who are truly suffering, and we are dedicated to relieving that suffering, and it's not working, we can't even find a way in. There is a huge pressure, and I'm going to call it a counter-transference pressure, on us as clinicians to do something. And people will sometimes offer us, do this, and it will work, and you will succeed. And sometimes, as doctors, we have been too quick to grab that and go with it. And I want to be sure, before we grab this one and go with it, that we really walk around and kick the tires and use our best science, our best methodology, and that we also examine ourselves before jumping into this with both feet. Because... I would love to be able to cure people uh, very quickly uh, from terrible suffering. Um, and uh, it would make me very happy to be able to do that. But I want to be careful I'm not treating myself uh, as my patient. No, that, that's perfect. And that, that, that statement brings it to, to, to a good end and stop um, on this discussion.